Um, well, recently we have been enjoying a little series um, through uh, following Paul, the um, Apostle Paul, through various ancient European cities um, and as he teaches people about Jesus. Um, and one of the things that has come out, I think, from that little series is about Bible teaching. Um, and we've seen that, that when the Bible is opened in church, um, it shouldn't be a time um, for preachers to, to sort of wallop people with a message from a distance, um, sort of like that, that typical Bible bashing um, image. Um, it shouldn't be a time for um, the preacher to air their own opinions and um, use a stage to sort of get things off their chest. Um, and it shouldn't be particularly um, stuffy and serious, but neither should it be just like a stage for entertainment. When the Bible is opened, it's a time for God to speak to us. He communicates his word to us. And so the preacher is only useful if they, they do that um, in a useful, helpful way. So uh, that's my prayer this morning, um, that I'm very much hopeful that as, as God has an unflawed message, something that's true and good, he will use flawed people, speakers, to communicate that message. Um, so I'm hoping that I won't hinder his message as I speak today. Well, we are jumping into uh, this part of the Bible written by Luke, a historian. Um, and we join Jesus in Jerusalem in about 33 AD, talking in the temple to first century Jewish people. And they're in, under Roman authority at this time. So um, I, want, I want us to realize, remember, See for the first time, perhaps, this is a real Jesus. He really existed. Uh, he's in a real city. It really existed. Um, he's in a real building with real people. He's actually talking to people. These aren't removed from, from history, these pages of Scripture. Uh, he's probably talking in one of the most um, well-written about ancient times as well um, in the Roman Empire. So if you or I were there, we would have heard him say these things. I think that's important for us to remember as we come to the Bible, um, these are real events documented down, and we'd have heard them if we'd been there. Thankfully, even though we didn't, we can read them, which is brilliant. Um, And we can read them in our own language, which is also brilliant, I think. So, I wonder what springs to mind when um, you uh, read a parable, a story told by Jesus, or, or, or read something Jesus said, because um, I think it is tempting to, to remove the person from the words, um, to remove Jesus from it and forget that behind those, those wonderful messages and truths and wisdom is a historical man. He really existed. And here in Luke 20, um, Jesus is not just telling an abstract story randomly, um, like a sort of, he's got a, a set of sayings that he, that he brings out. He's, he's not removed from the time he's in. He's actually talking to people. And he sees in Jerusalem um, a problem. And he's responding to that problem at the time to real people. Um, he sees something that's hindering uh, people coming to know God. And that's what he's all about. Bringing people who are cut off from God to come to know him, to know God. So he sees that there's lots of religion around in first century Jerusalem. Lots of the religion, but, but a very real danger that God is being left out of the picture. 
And uh, the most important religious people around are the target of of quite a devastating parable from Jesus. This is quite hard-hitting, I think. So, um, being that it's in a particular time, and usually we preach through um, a book and we'd have seen where we've come from and where we're at, I just thought hopefully it would be helpful to do a little recap. Um, So I'm hoping we've got some slides. So just to get our bearings, where we're at in the Bible and where we're at with with Jesus' life and his ministry. So, what's happening? Well, um, when is it? Well, this is about a week before Jesus dies, about a week before Passover, so about March 33 AD. Um, Where is he? Well, if you just look back a few verses to to verse 1, chapter 20, verse 1, he's teaching in the temple. He's in Jerusalem. He's arrived in Jerusalem. Um, Who's there with him? Well, again, in in verse 1, you can see there are various people in the temple, um, but particularly mentioned are these teachers um, of the law, chief priests, scribes, and elders, the religious leaders of the day. Um, and what's just happened? This is kind of, kind of useful to know. Well, in 19, chapter 19, verse 28, if you want to flick back, it's actually on the same page, isn't it? It's the same double spread. Um, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem. Um, he's arrived in Jerusalem, but, but not particularly impressively, especially if you're expecting um, a king, as the Jewish people were expecting. The Messiah was a king. So, like, oh, brilliant. He's come in on, on a donkey, on a, on a donkey foal. Um, and so it's not particularly impressive. Um, it's not a typical kingly arrival. Um, and then in, in verse 45, Jesus, having arrived as a king, he doesn't go to the palace. He goes to the temple. So he doesn't come and sort of deal with the Roman rule, which they might have been hoping for. He goes to the religious place, and he starts saying, what are you doing with my temple? Because the temple is full of corrupt practices and being used as a sort of money, money lending hall. And he's saying, you've, you've forgotten that this is God's house for prayer. So he's arrived in a bit of an odd way. He's then gone to, to the temple. Surely, surely they don't need teaching Jesus. It's the Romans that need dealing with. Um, and so the people are either kind of intrigued, but if you're a religious leader, you're kind of infuriated at this point. This wasn't just, so Jesus wasn't just a, a, another do-gooder or a, or a moral teacher um, come to sort of talk about the Jewish rules again. They liked those. They liked those people who could sort of build them up, say, yeah, I'm doing quite well with those rules. Jesus is threatening their rules and traditions and practices. So he comes in, and he's a little bit um, controversial as he arrives in Jerusalem. Um, Even more infuriating, probably, for the Jewish rulers is that he's popular with the people. So they can't just sort of get rid of him very easily. Um, And so they're looking for a way to discredit him. And so in in, uh, verse 2 of chapter 20, so just a few verses and before we read, they're trying to sort of catch him out. So they ask him, like, what, what authority have you got to do all these things? Like, how, how can you come and tell us what to do? Um, they ask where his authority comes from. He's just a, a Jewish carpenter, isn't he? Just come out from nowhere, seemingly, out of the, the, uh, the lands that, you know, surround Jerusalem, out of nowhere. And after a little bit of back and forth where Jesus is saying, are you really asking that question or are you just trying to get rid of me? We come to our passage today. And 
Jesus is telling this story to illustrate um, something to the Jewish leaders at the time. He's saying, I do have authority, and I'll show you who I am. Don't ignore me. And he's saying that to those Jewish leaders back in first century uh, Palestine. So, I think our role as we read this is to listen in to this story that Jesus is not primarily telling to us here, firstly. He's telling it to the Jewish leaders back in the first century. Um, And to see, as we listen in, we can see um, what he reveals about himself. And I think that's very powerful to to learn from when we're looking um, into what Jesus is teaching others um, to see how it applies to ourselves. Um, I like to think of it as, um, if you're familiar with the Harry Potter books, um, I like to think of it as diving into um, Dumbledore's pensive. If you're not familiar, um, the pensive in Harry Potter is is where lots of Dumbledore's uh, memories are stored. And... In order that Harry can, can get the information he needs and learn about how to defeat Lord Voldemort, Dumbledore lets him come in and experience his memories by diving into the pensive. And so Harry can watch and hear all these um, memories as an invisible character in the scene. He knows he's not the primary audience for those memories, but he learns from it and he applies it to his situation. So that's what I want us to do. Um, we're not the primary audience for Jesus' parable. But by listening in to what he's saying to the Jewish leaders, we can apply deep truths um, to our own life today. Um, so, what's happening in the story? Well, the story um, is, is set in a um, farming, I guess, uh, culture. And there's a man who's planted a vineyard. And he is letting it out to um, some tenants to look after it. Um, he goes away um, to, a, to a different country and he leaves them in charge. So far, so good. I think we can follow that. However, I just thought it would be useful um, because, again, we're trying to listen in as the Jews were there in that first century um, to make us aware of the sort of things that they would know about in their culture that perhaps we're not so familiar with. Um, so... What you'd know as a first century Jew, so that we can get our heads around what's happening in this, in this parable. Um, if you were a Jew, you would know that vineyards like, have a special significance. Um, so in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, in Isaiah 5, there's a really famous passage where um, Isaiah describes a vineyard. And he says in verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, the vineyard of, of God, is the house of Israel. It's God's people. And so um, this would have been really well known to you. If you were there in the temple, you'd be like, vineyard, ha- hang on a minute, he's chosen a vineyard. But, but that's the, the picture of God's people, isn't it? That's God's people. Okay, vineyard equals Israel. Vineyard equals God's people. Um, second thing about the culture of this sort of tenancy thing is that tenants would be expected to give some of their harvest uh, to the owner when um, the harvest time came. So they're looking after the field, but they're expected to give a bit of their produce over, produce over when the time is right. So that's another thing maybe we're not so um, familiar with. And the third thing I think is helpful is that tenants would inherit the vineyard in the absence of an heir as long as that owner was still happy to do that. So it's like, yeah, I haven't got an heir, 
but I'm happy for you to have um, the vineyard. You've been looking after it well. So there's three things that will hopefully help us as we go through this, this parable. It would have been really familiar at the time. So let's carry on in the story. So we've got down to about verse 10, haven't we, there? Um, so when the time came, remember this is expected, when the time came at harvest time, the owner sends somebody to collect what he's due. He sends a servant, and the servant is beaten and then sent away without what he's due, what the owner's due. So first thing that's happening here that's not expected, not with the script, not with what should be happening. So the owner sends another servant. He says, okay, I'll give, I'll give them another chance. Here's another chance to, to do what is right and honor me in the way that you, you should be doing. Servant number two, beaten, treated shamefully, and leaves empty-handed. And so Jesus says, the owner sends a third servant. But this one, they, they really go for it, don't they? they? They wound him and cast him out. So then he says, I will send my beloved son, my only son. I will send him. Maybe they will have respect for him. But instead of showing respect as this only son comes along, the tenants are like, oh, this is, this is the heir. Hang on, if there's no heir, we'll get the vineyard. So let's kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. They decide that if they get rid of the heir, then they will have the vineyard for themselves. So that's what they do. They kill the owner's beloved son. That's the story that Jesus is telling here. So let's pause there, um, because it's not really how, how the story was meant to go if it was normal. There'd be harvest given, and that would be a good relationship between the owner and the tenants. But instead of agreeing to give some of the fruit, the tenants decide to keep it for themselves, and they disregard the owner. Not only do they send the servant away empty-handed, but also beaten. And at the sight of the second servant, they do no different. Empty-handed, beaten, badly treated. And so we get the picture that the tenants here in this story that Jesus is telling are the villains, aren't they? They're the villains of the story, and these tenants seem to be stubbornly sticking with that decision to show no respect to the owner and his servants. So when a third servant comes along, they really get going, don't they? They properly wound him and send him off. It seems their idea is to to wear down the owner um, into submission so that he just gives up and lets them have the vineyard. Too many people are being treated badly. I'll I'll just let them to it. Um, It's not, not worth my trouble. And the owner does seem troubled, doesn't he? And he decides at last to send his own son, his own beloved son, there in verse 13. What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But by now, the tenants seem quite, it seems, I get the impression they're quite giddy. They've, they've sort of worked themselves up to this position. And they decide that in their minds, if they kill the son, they'll have the inheritance. Which seems like madness, I think, to me. Um, because although there'd be no heir, 
you know, they, they're not going to be in, in the owner's good books, are they? Um, they're not going to have that relationship with the owner. They're, they're killing his beloved son and expecting to just have the inheritance as if, yeah, it's, it's okay. Um, there's no heir, so, so it's ours, isn't it? Isn't that right? They're delusional, I think. And they're, they're not fit for the job of being tenants of this vineyard. No wonder um, the parable has been given this, this title in our, our English versions, the parable of the wicked tenants. They're really sort of showing their true colors, aren't they? So what, what does this all mean? Um, the people listening at the time would have been piecing this all together as, as we have been doing um, as Jesus was speaking. And I think they would have joined the dots, um, something like this. Um, vineyard is Israel. So the vineyard is the people of God, God's people who he has brought to know him. The owner is God. He's the one that's planted the vineyard. That's just like Isaiah 5. So I got this. The owner is God. The vineyard is Israel. And the servants, well, they're like God's representatives, aren't they? They're they're giving messages, um, calling uh, the leaders to um, honor God, respect God. They're like the prophets in the Old Testament, coming to speak to God's people. And then we get the son, who's a a new character, if you like. Um, But he's described in a particular way, which I think is very important. So in verse 13... The owner describes him as my beloved son, which Luke's used that phrase before. If you go back to to chapter 2 and verse 22, that's exactly how he describes Jesus when Jesus is baptized. He says, this is my beloved son. So I think it's fairly easy to say that the son is Jesus here. He's God's representative with a capital R. He's like um, the full representation of the owner, God the Father. And then we've got the real curveball. We've got the tenants because it's like, well, these don't appear in Isaiah 5. There's just a vineyard and God's looking after it. And actually the vineyard doesn't produce what it should do. And it's a different teaching point. But now we've got tenants. It's the tenants that are, that are, are the villains. But they are in charge of Israel, aren't they? They're the ones looking after the vineyard. They're the ones that should be helping it to grow and flourish. They're in charge. They are the Jewish leaders at the time. So this is what you'd be piecing together as a Jew, listening in to this teaching, and particularly if you're one of those Jewish leaders listening in and probably getting more and more angry as you hear. It's quite a um, direct parable when you think about it, and when you have all this sort of cultural um, knowledge, it seems like it's very obviously talking about these religious leaders. It would all have been slotting into place. And then Jesus pauses, doesn't he? He pauses that parable. And you see, he's not telling them a story anymore in um, verse 16, uh, 15. He says, talks to them. He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? So he, he invites his audience who are listening to answer the teaching point, basically, for themselves. Because... Basically, everybody there would have come to the same conclusion. It's obvious. He can't let the tenants off. What kind of an owner would that be? What kind of a father would that be? His beloved son has just been killed. He's been completely dishonored by these tenants. 
No, everyone there would be thinking, he's, he's got to punish these tenants. Get rid of them. Get others in. And that's what Jesus says. He destroys the tenants and gives the vineyard to others. Even the religious leaders can hardly have avoided um, that conclusion, I don't think. And it's becoming increasingly clear who's Jesus' primary uh, audience is um, and what he has to say to them. I think um, sort of if he was saying a direct teaching point rather than teaching in a parable, it would be something like this. The primary message would be something like this. Leaders of Jerusalem, you've ignored God's prophets in the past and not learned from the warnings and many chances to change. You've ignored me, as Jesus speaking, God's own son. And I know that what you're plotting to do right now is plotting to kill me, get rid of me, in the hope to keep all your lovely rules and traditions, your comfy religion. And not only do you think you're going to do that, but you think you're going to be fine with God still. You're going to inherit from God. You think God will welcome you in to his eternal kingdom. You're crazy. Listen up. It's obvious what God will do. He will cut you off from his presence and blessings. And he will give your place to others who will treat his son with respect. I think that is what Jesus is saying in this parable. Um, But Jesus, the the wonderful preacher, teaches in stories. And I think that's uh, it comes across very powerfully in this image of the vineyard and the tenants. So that's Jesus' answer to religion that ignores him. I don't think it matters if it was Judaism, Islam, spiritualism of some sort, mysticism, or even any form of Christianity, if it ignores and rejects Jesus' authority, then it's not worth it. It's not doing a good job of getting people to know God. Whatever morals and rules Whatever lovely community that religious place might have, if they ignore God's only son, they've cut themselves off from God and his goodness. Um, And so we get to the end of the parable. And there's a little bit of discussion with the people around, isn't there? So a few quick words on those final verses after the parable has finished. Firstly, the crowd are shocked, aren't they? Surely not, they say. And I don't think that's about the verdict of of what the owner does. I think we can see that's pretty obvious, that's pretty fair. They're shocked because they realize that it's about the leaders of, of Jerusalem. They're shocked that God could and would give their place to others. You don't you don't mean our, our holy leaders, do you? And and the important thinkers, the ones that that sort of show us what to do, surely they couldn't miss out on heaven. But that's exactly what Jesus means. If they ignore Jesus, then they will miss out on God. And and Jesus shows them this by referring back um, to the Old Testament to help them understand. Again, this would have been really helpful and useful for those Jews who knew their Old Testament really, really well. Um, I think it's a little bit more complicated for us as um, 21st century non-Jews. But at the time, it would have been very obvious. So here we go. Jesus quotes a psalm, 
And it talks about um, a king of Israel about a thousand years before, King David. Um, before, when, when Israel were being mistreated, they were a small, weak, insignificant nation amongst very powerful nations. And the psalm is, is talking about the king who's suffering and he's rejected by these, these wise, powerful nations around. But then the psalm says, after describing lots of suffering, the psalm says, but the stone that the builders rejected, and this is what Jesus quotes, has become the cornerstone. And that is about the nation of Israel at the time when the psalm's written. Other nations around Israel are the builders, and they think they're wise to treat and reject little Israel, thinking it wasn't worth anything. But as it turns out, the rejected nation, Israel, was actually used by God in a very important way to reveal God to the ancient world. A weak nation becoming a powerful one with a special place in God's plan. So that's what he's referring to. And then Jesus is saying, this is happening again. But this time, Jesus is the one who's rejected. The builders, the wise builders that are rejecting, they're the religious leaders. He's saying, it's happened before, now it's happening within Israel itself. The Jewish leaders, they're rejecting me. They think I am worthless and just getting in the way. But as it turns out, Jesus is actually God's son. He's come to bring people back to God through his death and resurrection. It couldn't be more impressive and more important. God is making him the cornerstone, that most important block in the building. He's far from being um, worthless or unimportant. He's a solid foundation. And every single person can put their trust in Jesus and know that it's a solid foundation. It's a solid place to come to God. Far from being worthless and, you know, um, you shouldn't reject him. You should come and accept him. So he uses this to sort of turn the tables and say, it's not, it's not us and them, it's not Israel and the nations. Actually, if you're rejecting me, Jesus, then you're rejecting God, and you shouldn't reject me. <laughs> he says, don't think of me as a stumbling block. He says, if you stumble over me, if I fall on you, you will come off the worse. It's, it's, a, it's a little parable, that, uh, a little saying of the time. Um, if a pot falls on the ground, if a pot falls on a rock, the pot comes off worse. If a rock falls on the pot, the pot comes off worse. It, Jesus is not to be underestimated. He's not to be ignored. He's not to be treated and rejected um, like he's something worthless, getting in the way of comfy religion and rules and traditions. And I think that invitation is true then. Jesus is saying, the way to God is through me. Come and stand on my firm foundation. But it's also true today as well. It's true for everybody in this room, everybody in this town, everyone on this island, everyone in this world. Jesus is the one to come to, to know God. Don't think that there are rules and ways and moral 
um, codes that can get you there. Don't miss out on Jesus. He's the key to knowing God. Um, So what does it mean for us? What does this mean for us? Well, Jesus is the promised king. He's the son of God. He has authority because actually um, Jesus does answer that question that the religious leaders have. What, What authority do you have to come and speak and talk about how we're um, using the temple he has authority to judge Um, they ask him how he can come and speak to him what authority he has and he tells them this parable he has authority because in the parable in real life he is God's son he is his representative he's backed it up as he was living with things that only God could do they say I am God I'm his representative and I'll show you that you should, you should trust me because I can do things that only God can do. And he's saying that, that when he comes as a direct response, um, representative of God, he has God's authority and he will judge everyone according to how they respond to him. It's very clear. He says, I'm, I'm key. <laughs> I'm that foundation stone. I'm a key point here. Make sure you don't miss me. And I think this is as true today as it was when Jesus said it in that temple. It means that as we get on with our lives, um, as whatever you do day-to-day, work-wise, whatever you, wherever you go on holiday, whatever plans you make for the future, um, whatever hobbies, pastimes you have, in amongst all that, the most important question that we should consider is who is Jesus and does he have God's authority? Should I listen to him? Because it's an important question. If, if the answer, if, if the Jews were right and they, they, they didn't, I mean, he didn't have the, the authority to speak, then fair enough, he just should be got rid of, shouldn't he? If he has authority, then it means we should listen to him. And if we should listen to him, then we should take what he says really, really seriously. And so I, I'd say don't go away today without internally clocking in your mind. Have you decided whether Jesus has God's authority or not? And if you haven't decided, if you're not sure, you haven't really considered it, or you didn't think it was as important as, as perhaps it is, well, I, can I encourage you, don't, don't go away um, without finding out a little bit more. Do a bit of digging. Read the rest of Luke's gospel to find out if Jesus is compelling in who he is and whether he has the authority of God. Because I guess that's the starting point, isn't it? You don't just want to follow someone um, if they're saying nice things, or saying things you may agree with or not agree with, if you don't trust where the source of authority comes from. So there's my little challenge. If that's you, um, read the rest of Luke. Start from the beginning, get up to this part, and read the rest. Um, Find out who Jesus is, and whether he has got God's authority. Um, But perhaps you're here and um, you'd say, yeah, I do think God's authority lies in Jesus. Perhaps you're a Christian um, and you've trusted in Jesus and you acknowledge him as Lord. Well, I think um, we should uh, reflect, if you're a Christian here, we should reflect on whether we're allowing Jesus to, to have the authority in every area of our lives. Because in this part of the Bible, as we saw, Jesus came into Jerusalem and he and he went not to the, sort the Romans out at that point. He went to the temple 
and he talked and showed um, the people there how they are you know, not living in line with, with what God would want. And I think this was a shock for the religious leaders, um, that his authority touched quite close to home. It wasn't a sort of, oh, yeah, good, good Jesus is here to sort things out. It was very much a, oh, he's here to sort me out as well. He's here to sort us out, and, and that's when they sort of start plotting, how can we get rid of him? So the reminder we might need, I think, as Christians today, is not just that Jesus is Lord of the world, he's Lord of history, in some sort of distant way, although that is true that he's Lord of the world and Lord of history, but he's actually uh, Lord of our lives now, today as well. And so uh, I think it might be helpful just to reflect for a moment in, in our own hearts with a few questions um, to, to, just to see if we are allowing Jesus to be authoritative in all areas of our life. So do we realize that, that Jesus' authority, um, Jesus has authority when it comes to how we use our homes, for example? Who comes through your door? Who do you invite in? Who do you rub shoulders with? Does his priorities, do his priorities about how people have innate worth, whether whatever background they come from, whatever interests they have, does that match up with your own? Are you letting Jesus have authority with how you relate to people? Do we acknowledge Jesus' authority over our spare time? Does he get a look in? When we decide how to use our time, or is it more like we think, oh, his influence shouldn't, shouldn't spread that far? Does what we say and how we work in the week show that Jesus has authority in our lives? Does his authority impact how we parent, if you're a parent? Does it impact how we treat our siblings or how we treat our parents? Does his authority impact our generosity with our time, with our money? Because it's very easy, I think, to sit quite comfortably like the religious leaders and forget to apply Jesus' truth and his authority to our own lives and practices. Not that that's how we get to God. (laughs) We know that um, to be accepted by God, it's nothing to do with how in line our lives look with what Jesus wants. It's all to do with trusting Jesus. Come to Jesus, know God. But once you've come to know Jesus, listen to him. Listen to his authority in your life. And I think um, the second thing that we can take home, I think it would be a bit amiss if we didn't go away with that warning to the uh, religious leaders learning from that. Um, because we shouldn't underestimate Jesus like the religious leaders did. Um, Don't make the same mistake as they did. The scribes and the teachers of the law in verse 19, which is just after there's a little break, their reaction is to go away and plot and think, how can we get rid of him? How can we ignore him even more? Which is completely the opposite, isn't it, of what Jesus is saying. Don't ignore me because... And they say, right, we need to get rid of him (laughs) all the more. They're intent on killing Jesus because they saw him as a threat 
um, to their religious ways of getting to God. They thought they could do it themselves with their structures and, and Jesus was quite offensive to them. But the parable that Jesus show, tells is, shows this is quite ridiculous. To get rid of Jesus and then expect to be welcomed in by God is just madness. It's, it's crazy logic. And I think um, we can learn from that as we listen in to the warning that was primarily for them. It's not, it doesn't work to ignore Jesus in our lives and then think, yeah, I'm, I'm good with God. It doesn't matter how much religion, tradition, do-gooding we fill our lives with if we miss out Jesus. If we reject Jesus, we reject God himself. So instead, we should come to the conclusion that Jesus is God's son with authority and we should accept him. And to accept him means to acknowledge um, that we need him to bridge the gap between us and God. Can't do ourselves because he might be the, the stone that, that some reject. Jesus, he's just a fairy tale. He's not worth listening to, or he's a bit odd, or he says some good things, but not everything he says is good. Some people might reject him, but he can be your cornerstone. He can be your solid foundation that you know is trustworthy to stand on before God. And that's a promise for here, for us. Even amongst the warning to the to the religious leaders, I think there's a promise of hope for us. This cornerstone for the future of the church, it's solid. Jesus has risen from the dead, shown he's the true son of God, and we can trust him um, to have a relationship with God the Father. So, as we surface from our little dive into the pensive, um, I think Jesus makes it clear that he wants relationship over religion, And he is, after all, God's son. And we'd be mad to underestimate him and his authority. 